Philip K. Dick Book Club. In each episode of this podcast, I look at one of the works of Philip K. Dick, and currently we are still working our way through the stories of 1954. And, uh, well, today I'm going to look at Prize Ship. Prize Ship was first published in Thrilling Wonder Stories in, winter of, in the winter issue of 1954. Um, and you can find it in the first volume of the Collected Stories of Philip K. Dick. Now, this story was written around the same time as Medler. In fact, Medler was written in July, July of 1952, uh, and and Price Ship was was written in August of 1952. Now, of course, these stories. Don't get published around the time he wrote them because he was sending these out to a lot of different publishers, and you know sometimes they accepted it, but wouldn't publish it for a year or several months later. So, you know, it, it might actually be better to look at these stories in the order that they were written. But if we, even if we're doing it the way I'm doing it, you can go back and kind of look at when they were written. We have a pretty good idea of when most of these stories were written, or when they were submitted to his agent. And that can show us when he was, had certain ideas in his mind. And the idea in Prize Ship is very similar to the idea in Medler, um, which is about time travel. So this is a time travel story. So, but it's also a story about the frontier and about the relationship with the off-world, off-world, off-world colonies. In this case, we have another example of a war between Earth and its, its colonies. In this case, it's Terra preparing to basically surrender to Ganymede after a two-month war, and this is not an uncommon thing. You think, like, why would the fr- how would the frontier win? Well, of course, you have America, and the the case of America was, yeah, Britain had to sur- had to give up its war effort against uh, its its former possessions, its former colonies. So that that's completely not totally bizarre. In fact, there's a lot of examples in world history of colonial powers losing against the people they colonized. Um, but here we have Earth basically going to, they're going to surrender to Ganymede. Now Ganymede was small, but the reason Earth had to surrender to them was that they were in a very powerful position. They controlled these jump points, which basically controlled interstellar travel. Anyone from Earth who wanted to go outside the solar system had to go through Ganymede, and this gave them this incredible power. They basically were like the toll booth for the solar system. Um... Ganymede broke free of Earth and demanded then a 20% tax on ships coming through. Ganymede threatened to actually destroy these jump points if Terra did not agree to it. And so Earth tried to retake them, and that's what the cause of the war was. The colonies outside the solar system, Proxima, uh, is the most important of these, the closest star to Earth. They really depended on this traffic flow. So although Terra has started to build new jump points on the moon, you know, they had to accept Ganymede's terms as a short-term necessity. So there's a lot of geopolitics in this story right off the bat. Before the Senate could vote on the capitulation terms, though, the military commander Carmichael, 
with one of our characters, read a report about a captured Ganymede ship. And so there's an idea here, well, maybe there's something here that can allow us to win the war. So they withhold the vote, the Senate withholds the vote until this ship can be basically studied. What the ship is called, it's the prize ship, as the title suggests. This is the prize ship. It's shaped like a globe, and it's prepared for a test flight. So they get this Earth pilot to come in and try to use this thing. There's really not any time for a full study of the technology, but we have an interesting situation here where Ganymede has been away from Earth long enough that it's sort of developed its own technological infrastructure and ideas, and maybe even has become more advanced than Earth in a lot of ways. This technology is unlike anything that the Terrans had seen before. Now, despite great risk, they send off a crew consisting of a, a general, General Groves, a doctor, Dr. Bassett, and the commander, Mark Carmichael. They're going to do this test flight, and basically they're going to fly to Mars. And they do kind of a rudimentary translation. So not only do they have different technology, they have different language even. So they do the test flight, they find themselves in a place that no one recognizes. They leave the globe, they land on a planet, and begin exploring. Before long, they're attacked by a, tiny, a bunch of tiny people armed with bows and arrows. The weapons they are attacked with are so small that they basically are being, it's like being stung by a bee or something. They don't really feel very hurt by it. Basically, they have approached this medieval-style medieval town, and they're attacked by knights on small horses and other soldiers, but they're, they're really tiny. Carmichael real, realizes that this experience may have been the origin of fairy tales, such as the knights fighting dragons and other kinds of huge monsters, giants, and things like that. He orders the test crew back to the globe, but back in the globe, basically, he, he talks about how they're kind of on lily put. And so he's thinking this is kind of where Jonathan Swift story comes from, I guess. He says, maybe we can confirm this by going to another place and call it Rodengag. This is another location in the, this novel. So after using the globe to travel again, they leave this globe and find the world populated by giants. So this kind of proves the point. And of course, in Jonathan Swift, you have characters that kind of go from this place where they're the giants to a place where they're encountering giants. Now, the crew decides, you know, of course they're on a time ship. That, that's, the, that's the explanation here of what's going on. The crew decides to keep their findings quiet and just state that the ship doesn't work. They don't want to get into the whole thing back at home. But they wonder how Jonathan Swift, who's never mentioned by name in the story, but he's certainly there in the subtext. How did he have access to the experience? Or was this just that other fantasy worlds were based on similar experiences? So the stories we have of dwarfs and the stories we have of giants and monsters and things like that were all just different experiences that kind of went through time to the present based on actually the events caused by this prize ship and the, the actually the events of this crew. So they go back, they basically say it's not going to work, and the Senate then therefore has to agree to end the war. Now a Ganymede official later comes to retrieve the globe, and he explains that it is indeed a timeship. Lilliput and Brokengenag, these two locations in the Swift novel, were not different worlds, but actually Earth at different time periods. Now this is due to the expansion of the universe. Because this idea there's this idea at when Dick was writing that as the universe expanded, 
Actually, atoms got bigger, I guess, was the way it worked. So people in the past would be smaller than people in the future, and people in the future would be bigger. Now, I don't think that's how most scientists think universe expansion works, um, but that was the idea that was kind of out there at the time, and Dick was using it here, and he's used it before. He used it in Prominent Author, in which a person is able to go back in time through a device to the past, and there's these little people, and he's able to deliver the basically biblical revelation to them. So the origin of the Bible is a person from the future time traveling and giving these lessons to the people in the past. Anyways, that's that's basically the story we have in Friendship. Now, it's it's similar to Medler in the sense that it's it's a time travel story, but it's also very similar to Prominent Author in that it's it's probably closer to prominent author in that it uses this idea of the expansion of the universe changing people's size, but also because it's about how we come to understand mythology and the traditions and the stories we get. Are they just products of imagination or are they interpretations of events that really happened? In this case, the idea is that the time travel device is ultimately useless, at least in any military sense. The material from the past and the material from the future are simply on such different scales that there's not much you can do with that. You can just sort of just visit. As the universe expands, all matter in the universe expands at the same rate. I suppose this would mean from a relative position the universe did not really expand. Now, yeah, I'm not sure how this really worked out in how physicists thought this through. You know, I guess now people think it's an expansion of space-time, not really that matter expands, but I don't know, maybe people know about this. We shouldn't get too worked up over Dick's scientific and technological proficiency, though. He was not good at either of them, and for him, technology and science were just devices to get at ideas. But for me, the really interesting idea in Prize Ship is the undeveloped idea that time travel is the origin of some of our myths and fantasies. Now, this is much more attractive than some of the ancient alien stories or the ancient alien astronaut stories that we that, that are there. And Dick did play with that, too. So I'm not saying he was entirely immune from this idea. Now, it's not explained how Smith, Swift, sorry, not Smith, Swift, Jonathan Swift, would have experienced both the past and the future. I can understand how he would have gotten stories from the past about the Lilliputian, you know, that these giants came but how, you know, maybe through folklore or whatever, but how did he get this stuff from the future? Did he have access to time travel? Anyways. If it was a time travel, that, that's a very interesting reading of his, his, his book. Um, and I, I kind of wish Dick would have done more with that or been more explicit on what he thought about Swift's role in the past. But he, he I think he couldn't figure it quite out either, and therefore he just kind of drops it in. Okay, let's talk now what to do with folklore. I like folklore. I, I try to read a lot of folklore. I'm interested in these stories of, of ancient gods. Um, but we have a tendency to try to want to make sense of them. So we get stories like this that try to give a naturalistic explanation about why we have folklore, rather than seeing it as just a product of our creativity as human beings. We try to explain it away by saying, well, maybe Asgard's are actually aliens, right? we got the Thor stories in comic books. Or in this case, we have the Swift narrative 
or the folklore of medieval knights fighting giants as just a way that they responded to the reality of time travelers coming to their, their moment. I'd rather see folklore really as a product of our imagination, but at the same time I understand why people may have wanted to explore this idea that there is a place in you know, for this kind of, you know, this kind of examination of naturalistic explanations for these stories. You know, we want these stories to be real on some level. And how do we make them real without moving into fantasy and, and, and all, that, all that kind of thing? Now, the geopolitics of Price Ship are important. Dix often comes back to this idea that expansion will create these communities of humans with different identities, values, and even different technologies. This is something he's really going to hit home in his story, Souvenir. Here, in this story, he adds how these frontier places can be more politically powerful than even the home planet. And this is because they control trade or they control commerce, but even technologically. They got to time travel long before the home country did. So the frontier is, again, the space for creativity and expansion and new ideas and all this stuff. So this could be put into another one of his frontier stories. It actually very easily defeat the much stronger Earth, or much more populous, we assume, but also much stronger militarily Earth, because they control these nexus points for trade. And that's a common thing in the Cold War in the 1950s and 60s is the struggle with these formerly colonized people who actually do are able to achieve their independence um, throughout Africa and Asia. Here we have a very, really clever example of how a weak nation can easily defeat a much stronger nation if the stronger nation underestimates the strategic value of the weaker party. And that's certainly the case in this story. Ganymede was very able, was very quickly able to defeat Terra, push them into capitula capitulation because they simply could not survive without that commerce that Ganymede provided. Um, you know, and then the importance of these outer colonies to the existence of of the homeland. Uh, so there's a lot of frontier stuff in the story, at least in the backdrop, even if the story is a little bit more focused. So I guess that does it with with Pryship. I, I thought I would have had more to say about it, but I guess I don't. Um, thank you so much for listening, and I will be back very shortly with another one of Philip K. Dick's stories. Come my tired thoughts once that that leaving dies, that leaving dies.